welcome to tonight's episode of The Mary Trump Show. I'm thrilled and honored to have as my guest Asharangappa, a Yale professor, um, proprietor of the phenomenal new Substack, the Freedom Academy, which we're going to talk about, uh, formerly a FBI agent back in the aughts, and uh, just awesome commentator on what's happening in our world today. Asha, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited. Um, and I'm obsessed with your first book. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I, I, I it was just fascinating. Like I devoured it. And um, it was just like getting a peek into like, I, I don't know, like it helped make everything make sense a little bit for a moment. Um, and I still refer to it often. Oh, I really appreciate that. Yeah. Um, because it was, as you can imagine, not the easiest thing in the world to write. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> or, yeah. Or or to live with. But you, I, it was. I think it was an incredibly useful contribution for the rest of us to kind of just understand what could be driving someone and what, like, just the magnitude of the damage <laughs> that is really uh, motivating a lot of the behavior. So, thank you. Wait. Uh, thank you. I mean, that's really kind of you. Um, and, and and it's actually a quite quite a good segue because um, you know my book was mostly a, a, about what one person, how one person became uh, not just so dangerous, but how he was allowed to inhabit a space in which he could be as dangerous he is as he is. But you know, we're also um, living in a time when disinformation uh, is has become so weaponized and it's spreading at, at an alarming rate because of how information has become siloed and, and because of social media uh, that it's, you know, and that brings me back to your subsec again. It's so important that people understand the mechanisms behind all of this. Uh, so if you could talk a little bit, I, I have so much to ask you, but I want to start with your subsect because um, it's sort of, uh, and by the way, guys, for those of you who don't know, it's called the Freedom Academy and it just started, uh, you just had your first just last week. class yes. uh, released. Um, so you know, later on we could talk about the, the format of it, which I think yep. is 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 quite um, fascinating. Um, but, you know, you you draw on history and journalism and psychology and law and, uh, to to discuss in a in a an informed and useful way. Uh, this world of disinformation in which we live. So if you could talk a little bit about uh, the idea behind it, uh, mm -hmm. how it came to be and what you what you hope uh, it can accomplish. Yeah. So we'll have to rewind back to 2016. Um, and Do we have to? <laughs> I know. It always goes back to 2016. <laughs> it's like, I'm uh, sorry. I know. No, it's it's okay. PTSD. <laughs> uh, but Could be you know, as we were learning about Russia's interference in the election and particularly the disinformation operation that it was running, 
I think most people, you know, it was it was kind of a new thing for the American public, um, really kind of getting their minds around what what this is. Like, why does it matter? Who cares? Who cares if they were putting a bunch of memes on Facebook, you know? And um, because we've been so accustomed to think about national security threats as things that explode, you know, there mm -hmm. has to be a bomb or it's an airplane, whatever. Um, I had actually worked when I was in the FBI, I did counterintelligence investigations, and my cases mainly focused on foreign intelligence services conducting propaganda and disinformation operations. The FBI calls them perception management operations, and they're designed to basically alter and uh, change Americans' opinions, attitudes, beliefs in ways that help that country. Um, one thing that just sort of really came home, crashing down to me when all of that was happening in 2016 is when I was investigating these cases, it was, as you said, in the aughts, right before the internet and social media explosion. At the time, I was kind of like, yeah, you know, how bad is it? Like, so that whatever, they plant a story in a newspaper, who cares, you know, compared to what, again, what we thought about as being really dangerous threats. And it suddenly just hit me that all the things that were, you know, had been limiting factors back then were no longer there. In other words, now, you know, these actors didn't even have to be in the United States. Like they could be sitting in St. Petersburg. They simply drop it into a social media platform. Um, it spreads within hours to millions of people. Um, and it's become a cheaper and faster and far more effective tactic uh, compared to what it used to be um, and that we have been sitting around and we don't even know it. What I've seen happen over the last five years is that domestic actors have realized this is cheap and easy and effective and we can use this too. Um, so I started teaching a class at Yale in the fall of 2018 I called it Russian intelligence, information warfare, and social media. Uh, and I've been teaching it every fall since. And, you know, it's just, I really have to revamp the syllabus every year because it's just, yeah. there's so much to keep in touch with, keep up with. Um, and that's really the background on it. And what I realized also is it's a very difficult topic to really get your mind around because of what you mentioned that it encompasses so many different disciplines and types of expertise. Um you know, you kind of have to just come at it from a lot of different angles to because there's so many things intersecting at the same time. Yeah. Um, and, and the other thing is that that makes it difficult to convey to people is that it isn't. I mean, we are still, of course, in danger of uh, our foreign enemies. Uh, that will always be the case. But it's it's our domestic enemies who are getting the most mileage out of these tactics, it seems to me at the moment. And, uh, you know, we see this um, in what the Republican Party embraces in terms of the big lie and normalizing, if not uh, valorizing January 6th insurrectionists. And we also see it in the rise of stochastic terrorism. Um, and what one of the things that is actually fairly uh, shocking to me is that the media continue to fail so, so badly. Mm. Mm -hmm. So given that 
educating people is is our, I think our most powerful we weapon. What do we do? And it's, this is where we have so we have so much going against us. I mean, there's so many headwinds. And the people who most need to be educated are probably the people who are the hardest to reach. Yes. I think that there's so much to unpack there, but let me start with... Sorry. Our... <laughs> My goal is to make it as difficult as no. possible for people. So I asked 7,000 part. Questions. Yeah, no, it's great. And I wanted to just mention, because you mentioned January 6th. I mean, we need to understand January 6th as the culmination of a domestic disinformation operation. I mean, that's what yep. it was, right? Yep. And I think that it brought home to people that this can be dangerous. And even the words in and of, of themselves, you know, it's invisible or whatever. Once you hack people's brains, actually it does manifest in real life and it can be yep. deadly um, and destructive. Um, with the media, I think you're right. They've gotten better, but I think it's that there are certain journalistic norms that are, just ingrained. And I don't know if it needs to get to where maybe when, you know, in journalism school, there's some change in how and in how things are taught. And let me like give you an example, because this is something that I think I'm going to write about for, you know, the, the public post next week. Um, and I'm thinking about it is, you know, we have this situation where Trump has dined with an avowed white summer, white supremacist, and someone else who has made anti-Semitic comments. Um, and the questions that are asked are essentially, what's your explanation for this? Like there's a, you know, they're asking him to respond and give, you know, his reasons for doing it. And there's the implicit assumption there is that some explanation, like there is an explanation in the universe that right. would then make it okay. And also there's also the implication that he's neither one of those he he is <laughs> right, neither a white right. supremacist nor an anti-semite brilliant thank you yeah that's great that's a great observation and i think you know we there are these questions that are asked that like have these assumptions that we are accepting and same way like after january uh, 6th i remember me the media kept asking politicians do you believe that um you know, Biden is, you know, or, or the election was uh, rigged or something like that. And it's like, who cares what they believe? Like, it is a fact that it was not rigged. So why don't we start with that? Like, why can you not accept the outcome of the election? Like, that's a different yeah. way of um, phrasing it, because that starts from the premise that the problem is with them, you know? Yeah. And so um, I, I think that we need to just think about how we frame things. And when I say we, like the media needs to think about how they frame things, how um, are they approaching uh, their questions and what are they assuming? Because with someone like Trump, you know, who is a pathological liar, why would I, I'm not, I, you know, it's I, I said on Twitter, like, why are we going through this kabuki dance yeah. of trying to parse his responses as though any of them would matter? He is a non-credible source. So who cares? Um, you know, why not ask him, what are you going to do to undo the damage that this has, you know, created? Like, in other words, there's another way. To, it's not that he shouldn't be questioned, but I'm saying he should mm -hmm. be questioned with the assumption that he has already aired. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, that also just adds to the the 
larger problem, which is that, you know, so we, again, we have on the one hand, um, the, the people who buy into the disinformation and you actually wrote an excellent piece for cafe, I believe cafe insider, um, about, uh, the the ways in which um the right uses anxiety oh. uh and fear uh to manipulate uh their voters and I, I actually do want to touch on that in a little bit um but we also have the fact that that those of us who live in reality and and by the way God, there's there are no there aren't two realities there's only one <laughs> um we we come to feel demoralized because um you know the systems and the institutions we have faith in are failing in some regards failing us failing themselves because they're playing one because they're playing by rules that don't don't exist anymore and you know um they're not holding accountable the people who need to be held accountable in order for our, our, our institutions and systems to become strong again. You know, I mean, obviously, uh, Donald is the most obvious example of getting away with decades worth of crimes to this day, you know. But then we also have uh, Garland's failure to follow up on Mueller, Mueller's failures. Uh, the fact that we have this whole slew of people like Matt Gates and Jared Kushner who get away with everything while their the their associates who are outside of the inner circle maybe get indicted and convicted. So um I mean and that's where I, I think one of the reasons your uh, one of the many reasons your Substack is so valuable is because it, it kind of helps people who do who are connected become more educated about uh what's going on. But Again, though, it kind of comes back to this idea that we continually continue to be engaged in asymmetrical warfare. Mm -hmm. That's right. And that's why it's really important to understand the tactics, right? Like, how is this happening? Like what, you know, getting in an argument with someone over what CRT is and isn't is just useless. That's not. And, and, and actually, that is feeding into the whole purpose of that campaign. Right. Mm hmm. Rather, why not understand what is being done right now psychologically, right? And you're a psychologist and we can, you know, I would love to do your, your take on it. You know, this is using a shortcut slogan to encompass a whole slew of very complicated and nuanced topics in order to hijack people to not talk about, to not talk about or discuss those nuances and, com and complexity, but instead to be reductionist and make it into a culture war debate, you know? Um, so it's kind of just reducing people's critical thinking skills. It is reframing a debate in a way where, uh, you know, the adversary is engaging on your terms and your assumptions. Um, and, you know, I feel like if we, I, I want a forum where we can break that down. Yeah. Rather than just get in the same tired conversation about you know what crt is or is it or is it taught in schools or not i mean we know the answers to this but that's really not that's not the real point here of what's happening and and asha it's also uh, it, it these these issues are quite complex but um the media in in the instance of uh 
CRT, for example, and, and specifically as in regards to uh, Glenn Youngkin's campaign for governor in Virginia, they they just missed the mark entirely because not not because it's too complex to make people understand which it is certainly in the context of an article or a, a five minute hit on TV, but because they, they shy away from using direct language. Yes. You know, the fact that Youngkin got away um, in that campaign without being called a racist once mm -hmm. by anybody, you know, is, is part of um, how we get here. And, you know, you wrote, I, I think it was your piece uh couple of pieces ago <laughs> <your subject, laughs> about information asymmetry yes and how that also gets exploited yes especially when we leave these vacuums unfilled can you talk a little bit about that because yeah. it's fascinating yeah um you know i think if you think of the information space as a battlefield right and you have a narrative that is out there you have to have a counter narrative um or you have to have a way of pushing back or um getting out in front of it or something. Uh, and if you don't, then you've basically ceded the space to your adversary. Now, this is especially important when you have a highly organized communications machine, right? W one thing that you see with the right and with the Republican Party is they are incredibly unified in their messaging. You will see the same talking points from all different directions mar marching in lockstep and that kind of unif like just the cohesiveness, the rep the repetition, the fact that it's out there, um, it you know you can't just like leave it there. Wait, in and fact, did you see that Chuck Grassley actually tweeted out not just the same Thanksgiving tweet as Ted and Heidi Cruz, but he signed it, Ted and Heidi, <laughs> which was actually. No, I'm they literally like it is literally it's, I'm sure, sure there's like a email that goes out at like yeah. 5 a.m. that's like here's what everybody tweets today. I, I, just that's what it's change your name. Just change your name. Um <laughs> and so uh you know and listen, I mean the you know the other side is messy. There's a the, the point is that you know there's a lot of diverse opinions. Like you don't want to have like necessarily like organized uh you know propaganda machines, you know, do battling. But what my point is, is that when when there is something to uh, correct or add to that um, topic or narrative, it needs to be done. And the, the example that I used in um, the piece that you mentioned is when Barr basically used the information vacuum to put out his yeah. false summary and it just went unchallenged, at least not in public. You know, mm -hmm. Mueller apparently wrote some letter to Barr that was like, you know, you caused confusion. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> you lied yes. egregiously. And it would have helped if Mueller had come out and actually, you know, called him out. Um, because I think people would have then had two people whose credibility they could assess and determine, you know, whether they wanted to uh look further. And un unfortunately, that didn't happen. I think, to a large degree, Mueller's conclusions have sort of saturated the space. Um, yeah. And it's sort of how we think about it. And I think, quite frankly, impacted why Garland didn't then move forward on them. Because I think it was, oh, really? kind of, I mean, I think, like, maybe not directly, but I think mm -hmm. it was sort of like, 
it's been so long. This is going to dredge up a lot of controversy and debate or something. I don't know. I feel like it just felt like there was a lot of baggage um, associated with the Mueller report. And I think that was largely because Barr took the air out of, you know, the, the report and it's, you know, to the extent that it had very strong findings, um, he, he kind of just obfuscated them. Well, he obfuscated them. And uh, as you also mentioned, the, the Mueller report itself is is a, a bit of a slog. It's kind say. of a slog. Yeah. And there's no not, I mean, there have, of course, uh, you, you were involved in this at Just Security and there have been other people who kind of give us um, more user friendly versions of it, certainly. But, you know, when they're not coming from the guy whose name is on the report, oh, guess mm-hmm. what? Um, we've just been visited. Sorry, I have Hi, to, Katie. I apologize. Uh, you know, I wouldn't be uh, as concerned. It's the bird. And I just had to make sure he gets less, as I think I told you offline, he gets a little jealous when I'm on Zoom. Oh, yeah, you did say that. That's and really uh, that can make him do all sorts of things to get attention. Hi, anyway, what's his name? Sebastian. This is Asha. Hi, Sebastian. Okay. okay. <laughs> just have to be careful. He doesn't step on the wrong key. Um. Anyway, uh, luckily people are used to this, the menagerie by now. Uh, although I was thinking the other day, remember like before COVID, that like, if this had ever happened, yes, <laughs> it would have just been hard. It would have stopped the whole thing. And oh my whole God. Yeah. Now people are like, where's the pet? Where's the cat? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, so, so it was not just Mueller's failure to, to counter the, bars disinformation but to keep people informed along the way correct absolutely and i think that this is again gets to this you know we talked about journalistic norms earlier this gets to um investigatory norms and you know they are there for a good reason right like you don't want to be like here's the evidence we just found on such and such because that compromises your investigation it's not fair to the accused but there is a way you know, there's a way, for example, that Mueller could have made clear that there were counterintelligence aspects to his investigation that meant that there were some things that may be uncovered that may not find their way into a criminal prosecution like that, you know, which is a very com- it's a complex topic. And I, I tried to write about it some. But like you said, coming from him, it would have helped people understand like there's a lot more. This is an iceberg and there might be some things that are below the water that is being uncovered that may not be a part of a criminal, you know, indictment, um, things like that, educating people. Uh, and that, you know, it was based on norms that are there. And I think that they need to change. And the, you know, one example I gave of how these types of norms can change is I gave the, uh, Biden administration's response to the impending invasion of Ukraine by Russia in which they released intelligence show, you know, that that this was Putin's plan, that he was going to accuse Ukraine of engaging in genocide, like all of these different pretexts that he was going to use. And in doing that, that pre-bunking, as it's as it's been called since, was very effective in uh, not allowing Putin's disinformation campaigns to get traction, in essentially unifying world opinion against what he was doing um, and really rendering 
Putin's position much less effective. Um, and I think that there's a lesson to be learned from that, you know, because normally, the, you know, an administration would not do that. They would hold those that intelligence very close to the chest and be sitting on it, knowing what was going to happen, but not releasing it to the public. And they did not do that. Um, they decided to actually engage in that space. And what that example reminds us is how how unusual that kind of step is and mm -hmm. how the left in particular continues to play by rules that don't exist anymore or uh, continues to play by rules that that constantly put it not just not just the left, but like anybody who cares about norms, anybody who cares about doing the right thing um, <laughs> is ceding valuable territory uh, because they're allowing uh, the narrative to be written by people who don't give a shit about yeah. norms or playing I, by rules. I would go even further and say that they're undermining the very principles that these norms are there ostensibly to protect yeah. and promote, right? Um, yeah. You know, you have, in, in some ways, the the paradigm has shifted and now you have to kind of overcompensate in some ways to recalibrate the whole thing um, and not be afraid to do that. Uh, and I think also the other piece, we talked a little bit about how there's all these different angles to disinformation Part of the inability to do this is a very naive view of the information space. Like we operate on this whole marketplace of ideas paradigm. And it's this idea that people that consumers are critical thinkers. All ideas, you know, are are there. The best ones are gonna rise to the top, the bad ones are gonna be um discarded. And this and you know, that in a free society, this is how we can operate. And that is a nice model unless you have a technology that artificially amplifies and pushes out and oversaturates certain, uh, you know, ideas, yeah. right? That's the problem is yeah. that people can't critically evaluate it because it's coming too fast. It's too much. And it's not, it's like the, if you had a securities market where companies were, where the valuations were not accurate, Mm -hmm. You wouldn't know where to invest your stock. Right. Right. Because it would be all distorted. Right. That's why yeah. we have regulation <laughs> for that. Um, yeah. You know, so if you are using the market analogy, what we have right now is a very distorted information market. And in that um, and it's completely unregulated. Yeah. And the bad actors are taking advantage of that to essentially overvalue things in that space. And these norms are preventing the people who could check that or who could counter it from effectively doing so. Yeah. And um, Maria Ressa, who's a Nobel mm -hmm. Peace Prize winner, uh, she was on something. I saw it on I saw I saw it on Twitter. I don't remember what it was that she was on recently. Um, but she she said, if you don't have facts, you can't have truth. Without truth, you can't have trust. Without these three, you have no shared reality. We can't solve any problems, and we have no democracy. Uh, so, so basically, and this is this is essentially what you're saying: social media is use free speech to 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 stifle free speech, right? right. So, because there's this bottom up dis disinformation of social media, and then you get somebody like Donald in power. So you've got the top down of the government. Um, and then also, you've got bots, and then you've got artificial. You got people who, that's right. It's not even people. 
Right. So, so what is truth anyway? And, and, you know, this is, this leads us to the, the piece you wrote for um, Cafe Insider about how what, once you create that kind of environment in which people don't know who to trust, what to trust, what truth is, what is, what is their real quote unquote reality? Um, you, you get a bunch of people who likely have authoritarian personalities or at least to some degree or another who are very easily manipulable. And, uh, then you have a, an entire political party that is completely cool with manipulating them, uh, including, and especially the leader of that party. Um, so, uh, you end up with this situation, and this uh, you you spoke about uh, the findings of I think it was Daniel Jolly uh, mm -hmm. who who did some studies about um, how anxiety and and similar emotions uh, create um, mistrust in the political process. So it actually causes people to opt out. Right. Mm -hmm. But then, which is great, you know, if you want people like that voting. It's awesome. But then, but then what do you, where well, does that lead? The flip side of that is if they're opting out because they feel politically powerless, mm -hmm. then using other means becomes more justified, right? right? This is, this was the psychology of January 6th. Your vote didn't count. The system is rigged. Nothing you can do will fix it. The only uh, remedy for you is to take matters into your own hands. Yeah. And this is how you radicalize someone to to you know when when they can no longer trust that they can have their voices heard or get the outcomes they want through the normal to through the democratic processes, which by the way involves agreeing to certain ground rules like accepting outcomes that you don't like and you're not going to always get what you want. Wow. Um then you're going to have a population that's primed to do whatever's necessary. And that anxiety and fear, I'll add, because at this point it's reached such a fever pitch of almost um, a matter of survival, right? Like the replacement theory yeah. and our way of life, you know. So there is a certain life or death feeling to needing this outcome to happen. Otherwise, we're all going to die. I mean, you know, I think yeah. that's how people felt like when they when Trump was riling them up, like if Biden is allowed to become president, like this will not be the country like we'll lose that kind of. Um, yeah, like like life or death type of framing um, and then also telling them that they're politically powerless. <laughs> yeah, it's it's quite a perfect storm. Uh, that... <laughs> Sorry, I know that's super depressing, but I, like I said, it I think it's so. to understand to you know exactly what what is being done quite deliberately. I, I think it. Listen, it, we live in difficult times, um, and uh, you know I'm sick of that Chinese proverb. May you live in interesting times. I'm I cannot wait to be bored again. <laughs> um, but it is true that we can't, we can't look away. And uh, that's a worse thing we could do. Um, but it, it feels like there, there continue, there have been so many missed opportunities. Um, you know, when the FBI, I don't know when it was maybe 15 years ago. Sorry, I don't remember precisely. But they re re uh, released a report that 
made it very, very clear that the number one threat facing America was domestic terrorism. <laughs> you know, and, and the Republicans would not let them or may, I don't know if they had to retract it or what, but because they were essentially talking about the Republican base, <laughs> you know, it got buried. And now, um, you know, we we live in a country in which it is so much easier to trigger people. There is so much stochastic terrorism being engaged in uh, on the right. I mean, you you could you could directly link well maybe not in every single case but you know the kinds of anti-muslim racist anti-semitic anti-lgbtq plus etc rhetoric to almost every single one of our most recent mass shootings um so do you think there's more well obviously there's more that can be done um but what what do you think are the most effective ways at this point, considering we're kind of really far down the yeah. road already, uh, to to recalibrate and and uh, right the ship, so to speak? Yeah, I I definitely think exposing tactics, like trying to explain what is being done and why it's effective. Um, so for and, and to you know get people who understand these things to to give that those explanations. So for example, my colleague Jennifer Merchika. Uh, you might follow on Twitter. She is a professor of rhetoric and communication. And she's recently taught, she's recently been quoted and as you know, tweeted about how some of these, this rhetoric, for example, you know, calling all Democrats groomers um, or LGBT groomers, you know, these are like what she calls devil terms. In other mm -hmm. words, it's so evil. Yeah. And again, we get to this point where it's so evil where anything is justified in being done against them. Um, that needs to be talked about. Yeah. Like, you know, and it gets to your point about Youngkin, like, you know, you can't just let people like co-opt these terms, use them, get this Pavlovian response from their base and, and not call it out and, um, and not just call it out for, you know, this is anti-Semitic or homophobic, but like you are using a term that is essentially, you know, casting this group of people, this person of a political opposing political ideology as someone who is like worthy of being killed. Yeah. I, and justified I, in being killed. Like that's what you're doing. And then, you know, start the conversation from there. Um, but that's not what's done. You know, it's like, why do you, you know, it's just these still these anodyne um, questions and, and framing. And that was one of the, one of the, more alarming trends that started in 2015, 2016. Uh, again, it, not calling out what the rhetoric was, but framing it as as effective campaigning. Yes. Like, well, um, that's one way of putting it. <laughs> but it seems like a kind of irresponsible a and dangerous one. strategy, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Especially when, you know, one of the people you're letting get away with it is, is calling you the enemy of the people. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, look, you know, yesterday, actually, for my Yale class, I had um, Julia Davis come and she was showing clips from Russian media. And, you know, we talked about the power of language to radicalize people. Um, and I had recommended to my students that they should watch Hotel Rwanda. 
Mm. Um, if you've seen that movie and how just the radio, the rhetoric that was on the radio and, you know, the impact of that, we need to like understand how this language and then again, combined with the concentration of it, the echo chamber, the repetition that people who are listening to it are getting from all different places because they're in an information silo, um, how dangerous and destructive, how dangerous it is, and then how destructive it is to our shared to, to our shared identity as Americans, you know, and I think, um, yeah, I'm not. Yeah. Well, do you, do you think that, that those failures, um, are part of why the urgency behind wanting some kind of accountability for something, uh, yeah. is so it feels, it feels desperate almost, you know, please Merrick Garland, Please, somebody, yeah. you know, whether it's Letitia James or Fonnie Willis or somebody, somebody, please, Robbie Kaplan, you know, just, well, just people who believe in these principles want to feel vindicated that these institutions and principles are still effective and matter. Right. I mean, it is hard to fight apathy and disengagement when you're bombarded with this shit. Right. Yeah. And so. In that way, I think the midterms were actually good yeah. because I think they were a repudiation of some of this stuff. I think, um, you know, it made, it made people feel validated in staying true to, you know, certain principles. Uh, people, um, I think many people voted on principle and transcended party ideology. I think that's mm -hmm. how you got a lot of these victories. We didn't have actually a lot of election denialism after it, unless right. I missed something. I mean, just Carrie Lake, who's just Carrie Lake, <laughs> right? Um, so I think in some ways, like we need those. We need those victories, right? We need those vindications yeah. that uh, our our institutions and our processes matter. That we're that we have these shared values, um, and I think that's why the justice system is going to be important. You know, that the rule of law is vindicated as well. Um, I feel like it will be. I think people have been jaded and disappointed by the Mueller investigation. I think there were a lot of yeah. important distinctions there that won't be the case. Does it mean that Trump, you know, will, if he's indicted, that he'll be convicted? I don't know. You never know what a jury's going to do. But I think we need right. to, you know, well, hope for the process to go through all the way to the end. He does keep confessing to his crime. So, yeah. you know, that should count <laughs> for something. But again, though, Asha, I think... It, feels very and i use the word dangerous far more often than i would like but it's it's also usually the appropriate word it feels very dangerous to have allowed this person who is a traitor to this country who incited an insurrection against his own government who stole we know this he stole thousands of top secret, highly sensitive documents and potentially endangered the lives of Americans and American allies. We know all of these things. And yet he was allowed to declare his candidacy for the 2024 election. Yeah, that can't that can't be good <laughs> no matter what happens. No. And I think the one thing that that disappoints me, but I guess if that's the check, it's the check is it seems like the one thing that gets people off the Trump train is losing elections. So maybe my hope is that 
at this point, there's enough people that are going to be okay with him getting you know, arrested and, and indicted and, and ended up in and end up in jail because he'll be out of the picture. Unfortunately, <laughs> I think there are enough people who've learned from his tactics and his strategy. Yeah. I do think yeah. though, Trump is sweet generous. I mean, he's you know, I think it's hard like I you know, Josh Hawley can try and DeSantis. They're <laughs> not love to see him run they're again. not a trump really like they right. i don't know that they can command the same like they don't have that cult of personality and the charisma and um in my opinion just the savviness of understanding how to manipulate a crowd in the same way mm -hmm. so i'm hoping that it'll like people will try they'll fail and then this will be a chapter in the past and we'll be all better at spotting this stuff yeah, I, I'm glad you put it in those terms because a lot of people, because, you know, we find Donald so incredibly repulsive, are, are loath to admit that he does have charisma and don't see that the, the, the actual good thing about that is there really isn't anybody on the mm -hmm. right uh, who can replicate it. One, because they don't have the decades of having been having myths about them propagated by his father, the media, and then the Republican Party. You know, um, a lot of us, especially in New York, are people who know, knew him didn't understand how he played in, you know, the rest of the country. Or the celebrity status, the exactly. you know, mystique, the television star. Like, he, he just has money. a lot of things that have come together exactly. in a very unique way. Right. And the other thing is that um, I don't think there's anybody, not at least not that we're aware of, who's nearly as damaged or damaged in the same way. And oddly enough, like that, that matters. Like that actually helps him, um, you know, not that his followers see it that way, but it resonates with something in them. Yeah. Uh, so um, that that is hopefully, hopefully... Uh, something that will help because um, I, I don't I don't really see anybody challenging him for the nomination. I don't I don't think I think they would consider it too politically risky. Um, you but, don't think anybody will challenge Trump for the nomination? I well, you know what? I, I let me. I shouldn't say that because who knows what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Right. Just like I won't I won't say definitively if he's actually running or not. Yeah, because it depends on how much trouble he is. Yeah, in. I think that's right. I think we need to see what unfolds. Um, right, because remember, eight months ago, we were being told that the Republicans go were going to win in a, the largest <laughs> landslide in the history of landslides. Yeah, you know, and just you know, uh, this is this is well. A, and I, go ahead. Well, I think, and I, you're pointing to something. You know, we can't. You can't concede defeat before, like, in other words, you, you can't um, play into and create the outcome that you most fear, which is what you do when you kind of become defeatist or like, oh, this is what's going to happen. I think we have to, and we, that was an important lesson going into 2020, um, into that election. You know, we yeah. saw all those, you know, uh, mailboxes be, and it was like, oh my God, this is all rigged but you don't we can't get in that time mindset right you have to do the next right thing and then um allow it to unfold 
That, that's such a great point. And I, I hope other people start thinking about it in those terms, because that is that is a, a huge takeaway from 2022. It, it gave us hope again. And um, I have to confess that uh, I was I was actually optimistic about 2022 to the extent that I'm a little disappointed. Um, but, yeah. you know, I it's but it was bad enough the way the, the media were pre-gaming it. But I have friends of mine who owe me spa days because they were so negative that they caused me a great deal of unnecessary stress by saying, oh, we're going to get killed in the House and yeah. we're probably going to lose the Senate, too. Really? I mean, think about how much things shifted back and yeah. forth over the last eight months. I mean, it was quite extraordinary, you know, and you never know mm -hmm. inflation. No inflation, high gas prices, low, low gas prices like we we can't ever know. Um, and just to actually imagine what the 2022 would have looked like if inflation and gas prices had been low. Yeah. And people hadn't been told that the Democrats were going to be absolutely killed. Right. Right. So yeah. I, 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 I think that is just a crucial. And another reason to have hope going into 2024 is that these election deniers who are all running for important positions that could have affected yeah. significantly the 2024 election were defeated. Um, you know, so the integrity of our system is, is intact. And I think it's really, um, we have to believe that it's going to work. Um, a great movie, by the way, that I was telling my students about, you want to talk about like being in a powerless situation or, or kind of, uh, an uphill battle. Um, there's a movie called no, this is about the Chilean dictatorship. And when the opposition had to create a coalition to vote out Pinochet, um, it's a fabulous movie, but it's it basically about how they had to get out the vote to get people to believe that, you know, because it's like a 17 year dictatorship. People are like, why am I going to go vote with, you right. know, <laughs> like right. this is going to be a completely rigged election. Um, they the the message what had to be a positive, hopeful one. And that was what not only unified the opposition, but it got people to uh you know, got people mobilized. And I think that that's really important that we can't have doom and gloom talk. You have to be realistic about what the problems and issues are. But I think, mm -hmm. you know, the we're all going to die. Who cares? Um, is not a good frame <laughs> of mind to be in. Well, it also gets people not to vote. Yes. So let's exactly. let the right have that as their, yes. <laughs> one of their tactics, just to moralize and frighten people. Right. Um, well, no, we can't say that because it leads to violence. <laughs> but that leads to political violence. Other so than that's that, that. Though, yeah, yeah, it's it's a bit of a conundrum. But, um, you know, there is um, there is a lot to, to be positive about. Uh, and, you know, hopefully we'll get to the point where we can um, fix what's broken in a way we can't now the filibuster the electoral college etc cetera, etc cetera, that keeps america from being an actual democracy but um you know there's also uh just the idea that i think people not everybody but a lot of people really did start to think maybe for the first time ever what it means to live in a democracy and what it would mean not to yeah. And I do think that the election being framed, at least 
in part in that way, that this is an election, a choice between democracy and autocracy was effective in getting people to think about it in those terms, like beyond, you know, some policy thing that they care about, um, but to think about it as an existential threat. And, um, and I think that we have to give credit to, you know, people in the public spotlight and leaders can start like people like Liz Cheney for really uh, bringing that message, you know, or, or echoing that message across party lines. Yes. Credit where credit is due. <laughs> I, you may not. Want <laughs> well, no, I know. I think it was, it was vitally important. Um, you know, let's, we'll just leave aside the other few billion problems I have with her. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. No, but that's enough. okay. It's, but, it, but it's, you know what? And we can go back matter. to arguing about that as soon as as soon as she as as soon as she runs for president in 2024, probably. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh my god, Asha, which would be I, great, actually. I it would I, be fascinating. Yeah, I think it would be really fascinating um, because I think partially because a lot of people who really only started paying attention to her. Uh, when she was on the January 6th committee or because she was on Gen January 6th committee, we'll, we'll get, get a taste of some of what she's really about uh, outside of that. Um, but also because it, it will be a blast to see what the Republicans do. I was going to say, she'll siphon off votes from the people who, you know, awesome. just can't bring themselves to vote for a Democrat. We'll find vote for Liz Cheney. And that's right. I wish you were running for Ross Senate Moreau. in Georgia. She'll be, right. be the Ross Perot of 2024. <laughs> uh, I'm not a fan of Ross Perot's either, but that's okay. That's you okay. got it. We got we've got Bill Clinton. It's I was actually say, he got the job. Ralph, Ralph Nader's the one that that was oh, the problem. Yeah. Was the yeah. problematic one. Yeah. But um, actually, I could talk to you for several hours, but uh, we're almost out of time. So I did want to give you a chance to talk. Uh, I mean, I you know I think we we talked a, a fair amount about the the substance of um. Freedom Academy, but you know, if you could explain to people how it works, because it it's not a newsletter, guys. It's not yeah. like you know, like any anybody like me could have a, a newsletter on <laughs> Substack. But you know, you came up with something that's that's unique, I think, in that space, and and it I, it would be great if if uh, you could tell. Yeah. Bit. So I decided to um, frame my Substack as basically a course. Um, I have you know, taken from what I teach in at Yale to, you know, just a few students every year and broken it down into little tidbits that I'm going to make into a quote unquote lesson every week. Um, and people can subscribe and kind of do this on an ongoing basis. Um, and, you know, we'll tackle all of these different uh, disciplines and authors and I'm, you know, want to bring in some guest speakers and the things that I would do in a classroom. And I think hopefully people will feel empowered, um, you know, as individuals to, to confront this threat. Um, and, you know, for people who don't want to take quote unquote, the course, there's also uh, free content, um, like other people's substacks. And, uh, you know, I hope that people will just check it out. Well, from, from what I've seen thus far, it's it's excellent. It's really it's, it's so well put together, so well thought out. Um, Thank you. So I'll I'll keep uh, promoting it here and I elsewhere. really appreciate it. No, listen, it's I know Substack is a is a can be <laughs> uh, tough, you know, uh, especially if like 
some people, I'm not mentioning any names at all. Oh, you kind of fall behind with it. So but, but that's, <laughs> that's like, the stressful part. That is that's but, the part where that you, is like you, you've you got know. a syllabus though, which is yes. one one of the the brilliant aspects of this it's you know like you have your roadmap uh, i do that's really what i cool. had to do, have a something like that because i was like otherwise i'm gonna be doomed with this thing so <laughs> well maybe not doomed but yeah <laughs> it's a, <laughs> a little little easier and also please have have lots of pictures of the kitten because i will for sure suckers like that kind of okay thing good um anyway asha rungapa this was such a pleasure for me uh so great finally uh, to meet you and thank you for uh, you know beyond the Substack and and your teaching of uh, all of your contributions over the years I've, oh, I've admired you. your work for a really long time so uh and I know it's not easy in this environment so uh thank you and uh keep it up I appreciate it thanks so much Mary all right thanks take care Thank you so much to Asha Rangappa. Uh, she's assistant dean and senior lecturer at the Yale Jackson School of Global Affairs, uh, as well as an MSNBC contributor, and as mentioned, uh, the proprietor of the Substack, the Freedom Academy, and uh, she was a an FBI special agent in the counterintelligence division. Um, I think from like 2001 to 2005. So her, her perspectives are fascinating and uh, her work is, is excellent. So thank you to Asha. Thanks to all of you, of course, for being here. Uh, as always, we will be back, the nerds and I, on Tuesday at 12 p.m. Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific at youtube.com slash Politicon. And uh, next week, of course, we'll be back for our Thursday interview show. That's at nine. No. What time is that? Ah, seven. 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Also at YouTube.com slash Politicon. While you're on Politicon's YouTube page, please subscribe. It does not cost anything. Uh, and leave a comment, like the episode, click on that bell right there. Uh, that way you will be sure to be alerted um, any new when any new uh, videos drop. And of course, you can listen to the show in podcast form um, at Apple or anywhere you get your podcast. Five-star reviews are very much appreciated because they really do help other people find the show, which is our goal, right? We want, we want as many people listening to the nerds and my phenomenal guests as possible. Uh, also, just to update you, our very first live on stage Mary Trump show with the Nerd Avengers, uh, which is at Dynasty Typewriter in Los Angeles on Monday, December 19th, is officially sold out. So we're really excited about that because um, uh, that means that we're going to, we get to do more of them. Uh, so we will, of course, keep you posted when um we figure out where and when the next shows will be and i think that is it for us tonight thank you so much for being here we will see you next tuesday uh and in the meantime have a wonderful weekend stay safe and be kind <laughs>